Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. And hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 60. It is good to be back with you once again with a regular format episode. And um, it's a long one today. But I'm hoping you all will overlook that because of two reasons. First, it's a very good conversation. Uh, And second of all, it's been a little while since there's been an episode like this. So uh, you haven't had these episodes coming every week. Um, So if if life in the pit is going to be kind of irregular at this point, I want to get you all that I can. So uh, we talk about quite a bit today. Okay, if you happen to play the trumpet then this is a must-listen episode for you. This is all about you guys and gals today, so definitely check this out if you play trumpet. However, I think this is a very valuable episode if you are just kind of interested in the process and some ways that you might prepare for shows, and uh, also especially if you are a brass player of any kind, Uh, This might come in handy. But I'm talking today to Paul Barron. Paul Barron has had uh, a long career in in a lot of arenas from playing on some of the most famous rock albums of the 80s and 90s. We'll talk about that. But also as uh, as a touring musician in the pit of a lot of Broadway shows. He is currently uh, back on the Frozen tour, as we'll, we'll mention toward the end. But he is also the author of several books, including uh, an upcoming book called The Broadway Trumpeter, Volume 2. Well, uh, we're going to talk about Volume 1, and we'll also preview Volume 2 toward the end. Uh, What is this book? Well, he's going to answer that with greater detail, but just in, in a nutshell, this is what's called an excerpt book. Some of the most famous shows that feature a lead trumpet part, um... Those parts are on here. You can practice those in advance. And there's also thoughts from Paul about how to approach the show, how to prepare. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of things in this book beyond just the excerpts itself. And so we're going to chat with him about that. Since it's a long interview, we're going to go ahead and get to that. So here's my conversation with Paul Barron. Paul, thank you for taking time to talk to me today. And uh, I just want to say off the right off the top that I, I enjoyed your book, The Broadway Trumpeter. So uh, thank you for coming on to talk about it. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really just thrilled that you took uh, an interest in my book. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun to write. So I'm happy to talk about it. Well, great. Um, I, w- I do want to ask you in a moment just a little bit of how you got into theater, how you got into music, because that's always good to know. But uh, let's just, since we're going to be talking about this book and, you know, a little preview of, uh, you know, some of the other books that you have going on, uh, what, what led you to write, what led you to write this book? That's a great question. Um, You know, for about 30 years, I've been thinking, I grew up 
as many of us did um, in university, playing through classical excerpts and mm-hmm. you know preparing for auditions and uh, or, or recitals or whatever you know, and there was just a stack of books available for classical literature, right? Um, and then there was all the the pop song books. I mean, if you wanted to play uh, "Feel So Good" by Chuck Bangioni, there was probably a play along for that. Right. But there hadn't existed, uh, to my knowledge at least, uh, a Broadway excerpt book. And um, early on when I started getting called for these types of shows, I was the sub. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of preparation time. Oftentimes there wasn't any rehearsal time at all because I'm coming in subbing for somebody that's already done the rehearsal and, and the show is up and running. So um, I felt like there was a need for this kind of preparatory material. And uh, so, like I said, for 30 years, I've been sitting on this idea and uh, traveling all around uh, and, and picking up local trumpet players and in, in orchestras of these Broadway shows that I've done. And the, the topic came up frequently, mm-hmm. like, wow, this would be a great idea. I've been thinking about doing this for for a long time. I, I've got, you know, such and such uh, photocopied. I've got 40 musicals and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we've always talked about it, but nobody actually followed through. So I had two previous books with my uh, publisher and uh, I just presented the idea and I said, we probably can't do anything, you know, because of copyright. Um, it's not like classical literature where, you know, Beethoven and uh, a lot of those guys have been dead for a couple hundred years. So copyright laws are uh, a little easier to put uh, excerpts out of those shows. Right. But he said, you know, if we do it under the um, umbrella of an educational um, series or, or materials, then uh, then we can get away with this. And, uh, you know, so he figured out how to make all of that work and pay the fees and so on. And uh, all I had to do is just write the book. So it was great. Right. Um, and just kind of clarify for some of the listeners who, who might not be into orchestral music is, you know, what we're talking about with excerpt books. Um, you know, typically, and, and I'm probably out of touch, they may do this completely differently now. But when I was in college myself, if you wanted to be in a professional orchestra, because I... Uh, I'm, I'm a pianist, but I did play French horn, you know, at the okay. time. So I kind of, you know, know a little bit about the process. But there are all these books of excerpts, like, uh, for example, if you're a French horn player, they're going to want to hear you play something from Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. They're going to want you to hear hear you play some, probably multiple examples of Richard Strauss, you know. <laughs> and sure. all And there are books with these on here. And you want to you want to practice them all because you don't really know in advance what you're going to be asked to play at an audition, and and that's probably largely the purposes for excerpts. In addition to these are famous pieces, and you know when they come around, you want to kind of have the hard parts already down, you know, so you don't have to practice them, uh, so that you can you know make better use of your time and so forth. Um, but so what you're doing is you're filling the void of. Kind of, kind of that latter point because nobody, to my knowledge, auditions pit musicians the way or- orchestral musicians are auditioned. You know, it's actually seldom is there an audition at all. A lot of times, it's a, here's my reel or here's a recommendation from someone you know and, and and so on. But you do sort of get an audition when you come in to play <laughs> if you don't play at an expected level. So you have done a good job. I. I 
I forgot the exact number. It was, I think, I don't know if it was 54 or 56 shows you've put in here. And they're, you know, they're not obscure shows. They're all famous shows that involve a trumpet. And, uh, you know, you know I, I'm, sh- I'm sure, you know, people will look at the book and say, well, what about this show? What about this show? But I think you covered a lot of the big ones. And I think a trumpet player who goes through here, you know, could probably save some time just by getting really acquainted with what you have in this book. Exactly. That was uh, part of the reason for writing this, um, because as I prepare for a show, I'll get the entire book that I'm going to be playing. And uh, then I basically extract all of the trickier bits. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll play through this show from beginning to end and basically take note of what I need to work on, what page and so on. And, you know, it's usually not the entire book. I'm not going to practice counting for a couple hundred measures or, uh, you know, wait through a uh, dialogue scene. So I wanted to consolidate it down, make it so that everybody's uh, practice was much more efficient and um, figure, you know, if you can get these licks, uh, I sort of call them the moneymaker licks. You know, there's there's something in every show where the, uh, the MD, the musical director, um, the music supervisor, you know, the, uh, the people that are signing my checks mm-hmm. um, are really listening for those particular spots. And if you can nail those and not play everything else well, but you'll almost get a, a pass for the rest of the, the music. Because if you really nail that, that's what they want to hear. That's right. what the audience knows to expect from the trumpet chair, at least. And the rest of it, you know, will sort of take care of it itself. Right. Right. Exactly. So I, I want to leave plenty of time to just talk through some of the shows and, and a lot of things you have in the book, but, um, get, let's have a little two minute bio of just how did you get into the music and how, how did that get you into experience in playing for, for the theater? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll try and make it as brief as I can. Um, my uncle had been a trumpet player when I was quite young and, uh, he had a trumpet laying out on his uh, bed one one day and I, I, I kind of slipped downstairs and I picked this thing up and I played a c- couple notes thinking, well, nobody's going to hear me upstairs because it's a whole floor away. I didn't know how much sound a trumpet could put out. So anyway, I was immediately in love with the trumpet then. Uh, I'll, I'll fast forward through my beginning years, but uh, how I got into musical theater, um, I had been a community band player from the time I was about six years old. So I was starting so much younger than most right. of my other friends. And um, the the age difference was about four years or so. So by the time I was getting into uh, high school, my friends had already graduated high school, if not, you know, a couple of years into college and stuff. And uh, so it was them that would uh, call me to sub on these musicals. So at, at 18 years old, I was already getting a chance to play um, I like to say last trumpet, you know, right. <laughs> back in those days, there were three trumpets to most shows. And so you'd start on third and then eventually more experience. And uh, and so on. you'd move up the section or if if the lead player subbed out, I'd move up to second and the second would move up to lead and we'd have a sub on third, you know, that kind of thing. So that's how I got into musical theater, uh, although I never intended on it. It wasn't. Um, my first love by any means. I, I, my head was geared towards being another sort of Jerry Hay type of, uh, you know, recording horn section guy. And I, and I did an awful lot of that in Vancouver when I first started out. But, um, 
it just sort of migrated into musical theater and I, I love playing it. It's uh, it's a challenge to play night after night the same show and be really consistent. But I really enjoy that. Some people's personalities, um, they go crazy after, you know, a week or two of doing the same thing. Whereas me, um, <laughs> maybe I'm not intelligent enough to split <laughs> my attentions to uh, wanting to do something else. But I really enjoy the sort of zen of try to, trying to play the perfect show every night, even though it's the same one that I've done for 400 times before. Right. You know, I'm I'm still waiting. Uh, I'm not even sure if you, I think you're you're about the 60th guest I've had on the show, somewhere around that. I'm still waiting to hear someone say, "I knew from you know when I was in kindergarten, I wanted to be in the pits, and that's what I wanted to do." I don't I don't think I've ever heard that story. It's 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 always I wanted to get good at music, and I kind of fell into music theater and learned to love it. <laughs> uh, so it's a very very common story that way. Um, so many places to start, but you kind of just hinted at it. You know, you talked about the type of player like a Jerry Hayes you wanted to be. Um, very often when you're talking about these shows, you talk about how it would be best suited for, um, you know, maybe a classical player or maybe, a, you know, a lot of times you say a commercial lead trumpet. Um, and you even compare that to a big band trumpet, you know. So, so what are some of the various types of players uh, and, and, you know, what are the characteristics of those players? Sure. Well, um, you know, and, and this is not to be exclusive or uh, exclude um, any, you know, one type of player for a certain show. Right. Um, because I, I, I hate being pigeonholed myself. Um, right. We, we could talk about this uh term later if you like, but I, I like to use the, the uh, term musical chameleon, somebody right. that can play in all different styles and like a chameleon, change your stripes, your spots, your colors and, and so on and, and blend in and fit in. Which, um, I, which I think is really necessary if you want to succeed with a high volume of shows is like you've got to be a chameleon. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a, a show we could talk about this as well, like Spamalot, you know, it spans classical, um, some big band sort of swing jazz, there's klezmer, there's disco, mm -hmm. uh, there's 80s pop. I mean, you name it, it seems like it's there. Right. And sometimes it's only for two measures long, and then you're into something else. So um, being able to shift those gears stylistically is really important. But what I thought I would do, um, and this was partially my publisher's uh, request was to write about what type of player um, would be best suited for a certain show. You know, if it's into the woods, um, somebody, well, let me characterize a commercial lead player, somebody that has a, a bright sound um, and, and they can carry over top of a trumpet section in a, in a big band kind of a, a setting. Mm -hmm. um, they may approach all the notes with like tongue stops, you know, like a commercial player would do, mm -hmm. uh, which would not be stylistically correct for a more classical show like Into the Woods or Anastasia, something like that. So in my little blurbs preceding each of the, uh, the, the series of excerpts for each of the musicals, I decided to, to uh, just write a little quick thing in there. Hey, this would be best suited for. And... Uh, and if the player reading that is maybe not as conversant in classical as as they should be, maybe for the upcoming show, uh, it's also a, a hint or a suggestion that, you know, maybe you should try and get more familiar with that type of music as well. Right. So um, I've been in pits oftentimes where um, 
the part that we're supposed to be playing is more orchestrally leaning. And uh, I, I've had some players that are definitely jazz players. You know, they may have kind of a beautiful, warm, fuzzy, uh, you know, Clifford Brown type of sound, or or they they may be playing uh, more strident and sound more like Maynard Ferguson than anybody else. Um, and that's not so much fitting into that style of music that we're playing. Uh, and conversely, I've sat next to players that are clearly amazing classical players in their own right, and maybe the principal of the local symphony, and they sound gorgeous, you know, on C trumpet and all that. But when, when it comes to playing a swing passage, it's really, really stiff. Right. Um, or they just don't have the the idea of, uh, you know, like an, uh, a short eighth note going like that. They might go ta, 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 you know, so they're there really has to be, um, and I mentioned this throughout my my book, a respect for the composer and the music and also your colleagues and friends around you, um, you know, to come in and really seriously take that music um, into your heart and soul and, and so that you can really play it with, um, you, you know, converse in a way that you're familiar with that style of music. Right. So you have a lot of stuff in, in the introduction before you get to the first excerpts. And, uh, you know, you talked about kind of the purpose of the book. Um, you also have a section you talk about um, warming up for, for a consistent show. You've already mentioned that already. Um, so I was just thinking about that word consistent. And also just want to tie it in. You, you have three types of warm ups you mentioned, you know, so you've... Uh, You've got the uh, the morning after warm up, which which sounds a little bit like after a hangover, but <laughs> you got your morning after warm up. Uh, you got your gig day warm up and your pre show warm up. So just talk about like warm ups and what you're trying to do as far as being consistent. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I won't get into the nuts and bolts of it all because I'm sure there's other listeners than trumpet players that would get bored to tears right. listening to me. <laughs> but uh, the morning after, um, I chose that title because I, I thought it would at least be thought provoking. Right. Um, it doesn't really have to do with, although I do have to admit it, it has been the case for me at times, but it doesn't have to be uh, after a night of, uh, you know, uh, hanging out way too late. Right. Uh, what it has to do with is wiping the slate clean or cleaning off the dust, mm -hmm. however you want to think of it, of your chops mm -hmm. um, the day after or the morning after a, a heavy blowing day. So right. oftentimes we're in tech rehearsals. Um, I think, David, you mentioned you're going into tech rehearsals soon for something you're working on. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, for anybody that's unfamiliar with those types of days, they can be really long, 12 to 14 hour days. What do they call it? 10 of 12s? Right. I think it is where it's a 12 right. hour stretch of time where within that 12 hours, you would get two hours worth of breaks. It may, might be 15 minutes here and there. Um, anyway, so the morning after is to to make sure that you get your feeling back in your chops mm -hmm. Um undo any of the damages that you may have done from the previous day. So if I'm really stiff and, and puffy and my chops are just not responding, mm -hmm. I, I like to spend that morning after um, leisurely trying to get my, my vibration to work again. Um, and sometimes that may happen immediately. And other times it may take me an hour and a half to really get my sound um, happening and my vibration happening in a really efficient way. So that's what I do in the morning. My gig day, 
Um, basically, that presumes that I, I don't have to do the morning after because I'm not terribly beat up. Right. This is just a normal day where I feel okay. I pick up the horn and, and it's cool. So uh, I'll do 45 minutes to 90 minutes or so of a warm up, really, but my warm up could be as short as five minutes. And then it goes into some routine kind of playing. But just so I get a little bit of a workout earlier in the day and then have about three hours or so before the showtime. Um, and then the pre gig uh is that what i call it pre-gig warm-up uh pre-show pre-show warm-up okay so that was born out of um my time doing uh adjudicating at high school uh jazz festivals and so on right and oftentimes us adjudicators would be in rotation and um you may might get 15 minutes or something with the band on stage and then you follow them off stage and you go into another you know, like a rehearsal room or something to do your, your masterclass with them or your clinic with that band. And, uh, up and down those hallways, as I would be coming back to adjudicate in the main hall, I would hear these big bands and trumpet players screaming like crazy, you know, playing all this high stuff. And then inevitably I would see that same band on stage for me to, to, uh, adjudicate. And these poor trumpet players had nothing left. They'd blown their chops out. Right. And, I've been very guilty of that myself, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, thinking, well, if I have to play up to high G's on this show, I really need to test every single note on my horn. I got to play lots of high G's so that when I get to that in the show, I'm confident and I know that I own that note. Um, but th- that's taxed me too much at, at times before a show. So I thought, you know, let's just write something nice and succinct it, it kind of gets everything going again and and only up to the point where it's working and then put the horn down and walk away and then be nice and fresh for those first few notes of the show. So it's quite a short warm up. Um, it starts off gentle and it and it ascends up into the upper register to a sort of comfortable level or whatever you're comfortable with uh, and back down. And then, like I said, put the horn down, walk away. And uh, so I'll do my pre-gig warm-up, usually about a half an hour before the show. Mm-hmm. And it could be as little as about two minutes. And then I can, as I said, walk away, relax, get a cup of coffee, come back. And I have the confidence to know that I've put in the work earlier in the day right. and just prior to the show that when that downbeat happens, I'm ready to go. So then it might just be a few more quick notes, you know, when we get the A to tune um, uh, do that. And then I'm ready to go. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of that's very enlightening. And I was just thinking, you know, it, there may be listeners that might want to compare this to say running, especially if you're a race runner, you know, you, you spend a lot of time training. Um, and you know, what you don't see these runners doing is running before the race, you know, it's like they're, they're, they're doing other ways to warm up and keep themselves ready to go. But, you know, they're not doing that right before the race. But another thing that kind of crossed my mind, because, you know, I've been a brass player who who hasn't had a whole lot of formal guidance. You know, that's probably why I'm more of a keyboardist. You know, I didn't like, I didn't keep the horn up into the professional world. Um, but when I think when I've had a long day, like if I had, uh, you know, you know, two rehearsals in one day or something like that. If I don't have to play the next day, my morning after has been give it a rest. Don't, don't actually play. 
But I want to take that back to running because <clears throat> I know people, when they get into running, they get kind of sore. And, you know, the response is the same. I think I'll take it easy today. But seasoned runners are like, no, you need to do something light. You need to actually get it moving, you know, it's because, you know, you got to kind of get condition your body for that. In this case, you're for a trumpet, for any brass player, really. So, you know, I I, I know we're talking about the trumpet, but, I, you know, I'm sure French hornets and uh, trombonists and tubas, you're going to be able to get something out of this, too. But you got to get the lips moving, you know, <laughs> you have to. Yeah, that parallel is perfect. Yes, yeah. just even light stuff just to get the body moving. Yeah. And wh what it does, too, is it brings in uh, a better blood flow into your chops. It uh, rejuvenates or, or uh, oxygenates your, your chops and it flushes away the lactic acid. So it brings down swelling and stiffness as well. Right. I guess just briefly, just talk about horn choreography and mute choreography obviously this is a big part of a brass player's uh setup sure again the, the uh, reason i wrote this chapter uh, was my experience traveling and picking up local uh horn players and um you know the guys would come in and they clearly had practiced all the notes in the book and and were were sounding good you know for the the most part everybody uh was was fully prepared but what i noticed is that um guys would come in guys and gals would come in and place their mutes you know wherever they were they may even have a, a mute rack and and their horns on music uh, uh horn stands um but it was pretty clear that they hadn't practiced the transitions from, say, trumpet to flugelhorn or uh, cut mute to harmon mute or, you know, any of the many combinations that you could possibly see. Mm -hmm. um, some shows also involve piccolo trumpet and cornet as well. You may have C trumpet. That's pretty unusual in a Broadway show. But I thought it was important to practice those transitions from one horn to the next or from one mute to the next. And so I just kind of shared some anecdotes, I guess, in, in my book about that. But also it's something that I, I really strongly recommend and something that I do myself when I get a, a book and it's brand new is I'll set up my music stand with my mute rack and my horns and so on um, in what I think will ultimately be my performance setup. And then I'll go through the book. And if I have to be in cut mute and then quickly throw that down and, th and put in a, a Harmon mute, I'm going to practice that transition to see um, how close I should have my cut mute, where that ring is in my, uh, my mute rack. And, and I, I actually learn like the muscle memory of where I can put that mute, you know, take it out and throw it down in the mute uh, rack and then grab the next mute. So I practice those transitions all the time. So then it feels like, you know how it is, David, when you go to pick up your horn, you're not looking for your horn placement. Where should I put my fingers or anything else? Your body just knows. You right. pick it up, boom, you know where it is. Same thing, you know, with, with my trumpet or whatever. I know where it goes, but you don't always know where you're going to put your straight mute or your cut mute or your harmon or whatever on the, the rack. So I, I really try to put in some practice time uh, ahead of time on those aspects of playing as well. And what that does, a couple things, it gives me the confidence to know that I can make any uh, horn change or mute change within reason, um, even if it's really quickly. 
I've practiced it enough. Um, and I have that confidence to know, okay, I can get it. Also, um, you know, things happen in, uh, in the theaters, all of a sudden you've got a blackout and where's that mute? I, you know, I can't see it, but if you've programmed it into muscle memory, I, I can still in a completely blacked out theater, I know where my Harmon is and my cup and my, you know, I know where all of that stuff is just instinctively. Right. It's, uh, it doesn't always get said in these uh, interviews, but it's worth reminding everybody the pit is dark <laughs> when you play. Uh, you usually have a stand light to see your music. But but that's it, you know. So it's like, what's by your feet? You've got to you've got to be pretty familiar with. You don't always get a lot of because you don't want to have to like be taking out your phone, turn on the flashlight, <laughs> find stuff if you can avoid it. Well, and and in many pits, uh, using any other electronics other than the stand lights and the you know microphones that they provide uh, is completely frowned on. So right. I've done some shows where they say turn your cell phones off, leave it in your horn case outside of the pit. We don't want to see them in the pit whatsoever. So, right. um, yeah, there isn't that option. And also um, something that maybe we should point out is that um, there are lighting designers and when things get really dark in the pit, it's for a reason. It's for a mood, something that they're trying to set up on stage. So, right. unfortunately, we aren't always... Uh, factored into that uh, mix there, like, oh, yeah, the musicians can't actually see very well because we had to dim the lights. Mm -hmm. But it's really important for what's going on on stage. And ultimately, it's for the audience and their enjoyment. So, you know, we just have to deal with it sometimes. Right. Um, I probably should have asked this next thing uh, after we talked about, you know, warm ups and all that. But you, you do have some stuff to say about balancing the show with practice. What are some thoughts you have about just keeping that balance. Sure. Um, a, a good friend of mine had played in Las Vegas for, I don't know how many years. He was there about 11 years or so on these big production shows. And the guys in Vegas had this term called stupid chops. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it sounds silly, but, but he explained to me what stupid chops is, is when you've been playing a long run of a show and you've got the strength and the stamina and the pacing and everything else where it's it's like you can do it by you know complete completely by memory um and and your body just knows what to do and how to gear up and play that show but over a period of time you sort of uh start atrophying um with your other skills Mm. and uh so that's something that i found for myself I could either fall into that trap quite easily, you know, mm-hmm. a, a period of about two weeks or something, if you're not really balancing the, the show and practice, um, it's easy to happen. So I decided that that was a topic well worth uh, discussing. And so what that is, is uh, taking stock of what the show is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll use the example of In the Heights. Right. I toured that for a couple of years and it's... Uh, for those out there that know it, um, this might be redundant, but for those that don't, um, there's a lot of Latin grooves in there, different styles of music, really high screaming salsa trumpet stuff. Uh, there's double high A's. They had me put a double high B on the last note of the show. So it was a lot of kind of heavy lifting, loud, fast, uh, well, at least loud and high playing. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a no-brainer um, to balance to counterbalance that mm-hmm. high, loud playing, well, soft and low playing, right, in, right. in practice. And and that helps uh, get my, my chops sort of rejuvenated for the show. If I'm 
warming up or, and practicing low and soft, proceeding playing in the heights, that really helps get my finesse and everything dialed back in. Right. And then there are other shows. Um, in our in our uh, notes that you sent me, David, you mentioned uh, Carousel. Right. Uh, and I, I played a run of that, one of my least favorite shows. Right. And uh, <laughs> no offense to Rodgers and, and Hammerstein, but... Um, and I was playing second trumpet on that run, and we had lots of written low F sharps and, and some really soft, low, low playing. Mm-hmm. And so that would sort of be the opposite of what In the Heights was for me. When I got home then, um, I would have to proceed coming to the show by playing more strenuously and, and higher register stuff and, and louder just to get the air going and my sound really happening. Mm-hmm. Part of that was because... I knew that I needed to balance the show with my practice, but also I was doing that run of a show and then I was going the very next day I would fly out, you know, having played a Sunday night show, I'd fly all day Monday and I'd get back to the the previous show that I'd been playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was quite a bit different. So I, I had to make sure that I still had my, my strength and stamina to play kind of a, a harder, higher, louder kind of show coming directly out of a really low soft playing show. So that that sort of helped formulate that chapter in my head was was to try and balance those things out. So in some cases it's a no-brainer like the the uh, two examples I just used. Other shows it's a little more difficult because you may have a real huge variety of stuff that you have to play during the show. So it just takes some thought. You know, it, it, right. and it may be the kind of thing where I, I even sit down and uh, this may be even too anal. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll jot down. It's sort of the pros and cons or the do's and don'ts, you know, that sort of right. idea. And I'll say, OK, well, geez, I've got, you know, X number of uh, high G's in this show. That's an awful lot. And, and I don't have a lot of this low stuff. OK, well, now I know how to balance that. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a very good strategy. Um, since you mentioned it, uh, you know, talked about carousel. I was um, interested in something I read when I was just reading what you had to say about carousel, and that was that you don't really care for it. But you know, as a professional musician, you know, first of all, I guess as as a musician, you're allowed to have an opinion about anything you play. You can uh, there's shows that I really love. There's shows that I don't care for that I've done before. But as a professional that shouldn't affect how you approach the show. So, so what are some thoughts that you have about like carousel in general or, and you mentioned, by the way, some of the reasons that you, you don't care for carousel go beyond the music, you know, it goes beyond, you know, some datedness, you know, with the shows. So I'll, I'll leave that, you know, for anyone who wants to read about it, but if for whatever reason, if you don't care for a show, how, what is your approach to, you know, being motivated to do your best job? Sure. Um, w- there are so many different aspects to playing, not just, you know, your own musical uh, enjoyment. And uh, first of all, um, I'll, I'll say if you accept a show, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you pick up the phone and you say yes, then it, it, I, I don't think it matters whether you like that show or not at, at that point. You have right. to come in and respect your job, um, the composer, the music, your colleagues, um, you know, the, the contractor, everybody, um, to do the very best job that you can. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that our own personal tastes and, and, uh, 
you know, whether we enjoy that show or not should factor into that anymore. So that's, that's the first thing. If you say yes, then come in fully prepared and, uh, and respect the show enough to do the very best job you can. So sometimes it, it takes some real digging to find something that you do enjoy or that you can sort of wrap your head around to, uh, to get through the show. And so I'll go back to Carousel, use that as an example. Um, I really enjoyed the colleagues that I was working with and, and my friends. So mm -hmm. that's something that I can hang on to. And uh, the show that I was doing prior to Carousel was a real high, loud, kind of chop-busting show. Mm -hmm. So this was a great opportunity for me to kind of dial things back in and to work on my low, soft playing because um, I, I really needed that work. You know, right. it, 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 it wasn't sounding as good as it should. So I spent the, the, the preparation time, the practice time leading up to the run of that show by really working on getting my sound um, resonant and happening in the low uh, and soft um, kind of playing in low register and soft playing. So, um, and, and sometimes it's, it's finding just a moment to, to work on something that is, is so internal. Like I, you know, I, I've studied a lot of martial arts and, and sometimes I'll, I'll try and come up with a little Zen game for myself and, and it can kind of take you out of, uh, that judgmental, like, oh, I don't really like playing this show and I'm tired of it and so on to, oh, well, this is very interesting. So like, for instance, I'll, I, I may spend a whole show. It may be the first act only. It may be only one song, but I'll, I'll try and, and feel the vibrations coming back from the bell, you know, and I'll just try and play as resonant and open and, uh, you know, and make that vibration happen as best I can. And that's my focus, you know, for that period of time. Other times, I know this sounds crazy, but I'll, I'll try to think about spinning the air clockwise through the cup of my mouthpiece. Hmm. Now, I, I know that that I, I can't actually do that. Right. Um, or I don't think I can. Right. <laughs> um, probably not. And I don't know how you could possibly measure it, but it's just a way of hyper-focusing mm -hmm. um, so that I, I'm really staying in the moment and engaged in that show so that I'm, again, respecting the composer, respecting the music, and I'm ex uh, I'm respecting my work ethic and job so that I'm, I'm not just kind of phoning it in, which is a real drag. If you're the person not phoning it in, sitting next to somebody that is... And you're having to carry more weight. That's a real drag. And I don't right. want to be that person that's, you know, the the anchor. Right, right. Um, it, I mean, for, for really just a few pages, you really pack a lot in your introductory ch uh, chapter. One that, that I'm just going to mention this there and encourage everyone to read is you, you have a few pages about pit etiquette. Um, and, and, and while I won't elaborate on it now, I say a lot of it is in harmony with a, a fairly recent episode that I had with another trumpet player was talking about the principles, uh, you know, principles for professional musicians, I think, or professional pit musicians is what I think we called it. Um, it wasn't, wasn't too many episodes ago, but, um, but was also with another Paul it was Paul Perfetti, uh, on oh, trumpet. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And we, we went over a lot of things and, and a lot of what you say, I, I really just about everything you say was, um, 
kind of in harmony with that. Uh, you did have one thing in there that I just wanted to, you know, just to mention. I just, I just like the quote. Basically, respect the music, respect the players around you, which I think is a good, a, a good nutshell. It's, you know, which is what you're saying. You know, do even if you don't like the show, uh, you, you, you want to do your best to play it. But and but you also. And respecting the players around you, I think, implied in that is is kind of how you treat them, you know, with your words and your behavior. But, but I think you're also respecting the players around you by being a professional at your job and 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 doing a good job. It's like it, you, I I think one of the things that always bothers me when I prepared music is is to know that someone next to me has not done that. And, and like I say, you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person that's being frowned on, you know. So um, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of push this on, though, to uh, let's just talk about some of the shows. So we talked about Carousel, and this is you've got kind of a large period, you know, your first grouping here, musicals from the 20s and 50s, um, which, by the way, just includes some of the shows uh, Annie Get Your Gun, Anything Goes, uh, Guys and Dolls, Gypsy. Uh, which is a show I love. Um, Holiday Inn, Kiss Me Kate, My Fair Lady. Um, My Fair Lady, I just like to, you know, take note. That was the first musical I was that I ever really paid attention to. Of course, it was the movie musical, which, you know, stage fans will frown on. But, you know. <laughs> it, it was an it, excellent movie, though. <laughs> it, it's an, it is an excellent movie. Um it it, pro- it it probably still makes me mad, though, as a, as a movie fan that Rex Harrison beat beat out uh peter sellers that year you know for his work on dr strange love for the best actor but you know <laughs> oh i didn't know that oh that's yeah. a little aside but I, that's interesting oh. yeah peter sellers brilliantly played three roles on that and uh, rex harrison for uh, one of the first speak sing you know roles you know in the movie musical uh, ended up getting best actor so uh he did a good job but i think that was a year that you you the academy should have acknowledged someone else for <laughs> sure but, yeah uh but you've got yeah sound of music singing in the rain south pacific so kind of a big uh pot here um four decades though in one category so so how would you just in a nutshell describe the needs of a trumpet player in this era well the reason i i lumped it into that decade uh or at least i made that cut off at about the 50s is because i i sort of felt like a lot of the shows, even though they're stylistically different, you know, mm-hmm. from one show to the next, um, you may have some more classical stuff or you may have uh, kind of flappers uh, mm-hmm. music, you know, Charleston type of stuff or, you know, anything in between. But it was all um, that era was all before sort of the rock and roll era of shows came in with more amplified music. So right. the reason I lumped those together is because a lot of the um orchestrations were more classically uh, or orchestrally um, orchestrated. You know, you would have three trumpets. You may even have five reed players. You'd have two or three horns in the pit. You'd have some trombones, lots and lots of strings. Mm -hmm. Um, After the 50s, and you're getting into more rock music and stuff, then you're losing some string players, you may be losing some horn players, you know, and you're getting amplified guitars and basses in the pit. So that's the reason why I I lumped all of those together. And also, my thought is, um, 
And this is probably not true when these same musicals from that era are performed now. Mm -hmm. But back then, there would have been hardly, virtually, uh, no microphones and amplification in the pit as mm -hmm. uh, at all, you know, be it for string players or brass players or anybody. And so you were expected to play uh, with volumes that would work for the stage. And mm -hmm. back in those days as well, they didn't have lapel mics or, or mics, you know, coming through their uh, wigs or around their ears and so on to be able to amplify every single cast member individually. Mm -hmm. They would have to sing and project to the single microphone or maybe there was a few placed at the front of the stage. But they really had to project, and if they weren't able to get over top of the orchestra volume-wise, it was our job then to play underneath that. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of um, a lot more dynamic range, I think, at least on the softer end of things in that first um, era, I guess, of, uh, of musicals that I, I lumped, what, 20s? No, 30s and 50s. 30s through 50s together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, I, yeah. You, you, you can label it, yeah, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But, you know, a yeah. lot of your 20s were review shows, you know. Um, I'm, I'm always been kind of interested, whether whether it's books, movies, or shows, the, the artworks that become the before and since shows, you know. So it's like for Broadway, I guess Showboat might technically be one of the very first you know there's before showboat and there's since showboat but you know i think for most people oklahoma it's like there's a whole era of broadway that's like we are still since oklahoma <laughs> when it comes to how broadway is perceived and you know so that's a very big show um but i let, let me let me kind of jump into so right at the very right at the very end of this era is I think one of those shows you have before then and since then, that'd be West Side Story. Um, oh, yeah. So let's just kind of single that show out. What are some of the things that you'd want to work on to be able to play the trumpet book for that? Well, I would get all the recordings from the back then and now and uh, and, and figure out what it is that they want from you as a player. Right. Um, is it a more current approach or is it the the original Leonard Bernstein conducted, you know, uh, cast recording. Right. Um, and, and I, I suppose I would ask the, uh, the MD or musical supervisor or whomever, um, what direction they, they're thinking that the show is going to go and mm -hmm. whether they would like to do it in that. Um, and, and these are not radical differences from, from one approach to the next. Um, I, I just think it's a, a originally, uh, um, it, it was written for ballet uh, trumpet players to play. And so there were D trumpet uh, parts on there. Um, the, the whole um, mambo thing, I think, was written for a D trumpet and a B flat. It may have been two D trumpets and there was a third trumpet as well. And um, I, I think that was written on those instruments to make it easier to play those those high notes and, and last through that uh, section of, of the dance tune. But these days... Um, you know, our expectations are higher and louder and, and, uh, and, and really, I think that that music lends itself better to being played on uh, a B flat trumpet anyway, because that's more of the Latin feel. I think Bernstein orchestrated it in a way that would make it playable, but maybe stylistically it, it should have been played by a, a, 
a Latin player or at least a commercial lead player that can also play the classical stuff within that show. Right. So that's that's my thoughts on the b- before and the now or the right. before and after, as right. you said. Yeah. 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 Very good. Um, so we'll kind of spit. We'll go on to uh, the next category, which is musicals from the '60s and '70s. And uh, uh, again, you got a lot of a lot of shows that are very commonly produced from this time. You have Annie Cabaret, Chicago, Chorus Line, Evita, Fiddler on the Roof, Funny Girl. So you know this is uh, definitely cha- a changing age of musicals. Uh, what are what are some of your thoughts on this era? Well, it's now we're coming out of uh, the era where it was sort of the, the previous era spawned out of the vaudeville uh, style shows where it would be musical reviews and mm-hmm. not much of a book uh, or a libretto. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're getting into an era where there's an entire through uh, composed sort of libretto or, you know, uh, a script. And uh, now we're 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 starting to play more things that are underscoring. Um, you've got a lot more of that kind of stuff. So um, there's more sustained kind of playing as well. But uh, some of those shows, like A Chorus Line, now you're starting to see um, electric guitars and keyboards in the pit as well. And the volume levels are starting to get louder in this era. Right. And I, I'm, I'm being very sort of broad right. in, in my descrip- descriptions, but that's sort of the way I view it, um, that now it's not just acoustic. And also now we're starting to play to microphones that are maybe with three trumpets, you might have one microphone. And now you're starting to have to play to that microphone and have to figure out um, some more test- technical aspects of, of playing those types of shows. Um and uh, uh, playing playing those kind of pads can can really I mean you know as being a, a French horn player as well mm-hmm. uh, the a surefire way to tear us apart is to write a lot of pads a lot of kind of string uh, yeah. you know whole notes and stuff that mm-hmm. go on for days that tears us down but we're seeing that more in this uh, second era of of musical theater that I wrote about and I, I wonder if maybe that partly answers my next question which was. I noticed in in all four sections of eras that you that you wrote, the excerpts generally were shorter per show. Like, um, you know, Bye Bye Birdie has almost it has hardly anything as far as excerpts. You know, and uh, Cabaret kind of kind of the same way. It's like it all fits on maybe basically about a page and a half. So I didn't know if just maybe the demands weren't as frequent, you know, on those shows, or if there was something with rights on that. Well, I, I think it's a little bit of both, yeah. um, it, but I think it's mostly what I did is I just extracted um, the, the trickier bits, the things that we need to get under our fingers, in our chops, you know, right. and, and mostly in our ears. And um, a lot of what happens through those shows is reoccurring. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, I, I don't need to write it out if it happens six times through the show. Once is plenty. You know, you've got it under your fingers there. Um, and in some cases it might be in a different key center, you know, it may have been transposed. And so I'll try to include it if it's in a different key, especially if it's, you know, if you're playing in F at one point and all of a sudden you're playing in B and it makes it really hard to facilitate the, uh, the fingers, then, then I'll write that. But otherwise, um, yes, they are getting a little bit, uh, 
the, the excerpts are getting a little bit shorter by that point. Right. Uh, and then, you know, I'd, I would love to take the time if, if we were doing, a, you know, like a two hour interview, it would probably take more time, mention some shows. But I just have to make special mention of Man of La Mancha. That was uh, a show I did in 2019. And, um, you know, I didn't play brass books on that, but but I but I music directed it. And I just I love the brass parts, especially for the French horns, but but the trumpet as well. It's just uh, really seems like a wonderful book. It is. It's a blast to play, and uh, you, you really get a workout for your triple tonguing yep. <laughs> on that show. <laughs> right. And, and you know, I, I'll just jump back really quickly. One last uh, statement about respecting the music and your colleagues mm-hmm. um, on a show that you may not enjoy. Um, I, I feel it's also an, an opportunity to then open your ears to the other parts of the orchestration that you're not playing. You know, right. enjoy the oboe solos and... and oh, yeah. Enjoy, um, you know, just just the sonorous kind of uh, intonation that you might be able to get with the brass section, even if it's uh, a whole note and you're you're bored to tears. You right. can still really work on that and work on your ears. Right. I had a good chance with that when I did uh, uh, Jason Robert Brown's show Parade, um, because I played basically it was the accordion part, which you know demands de- demands attention on the notes for for maybe. 10% of the show, <laughs> you know, may, may, or maybe, maybe 15%. It's, 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 as far as like, you know, got to be really pay attention to what I'm playing. Otherwise it's a lot of whole notes and counting rests and so forth. It's a great show, but, but the accordion part is not, uh, by itself, you know, other than, than the way it adds to the score. It's not individually, you know, very super interesting. But you start hearing what the French horn's doing. There's some really great bass clarinet parts, you know, and so forth. And um, just the way he uses the string section, I was just, I was very impressed. It was a nice opportunity to just sit back and listen to that. And of course, not to be the music director and have to, you know, do cues and, <laughs> and keep up with everything that's going on, but to just really appreciate that. So that's a good point. Sure. Um, music. Musicals from the '80s and '90s. Uh, I mean, this what you have in this book. It just sounds like uh, I, I think even casual fans will know just about all of these shows: Beauty and the Beast, Cats, um, City of Angels. Maybe not not as common, but it's one of those actors love that show, and, and it's really good. Um, Dream Girls, Into the Woods, Les Misérables, <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors, Miss Saigon. Uh, so much going on there. I think the one uh, the thing I wanted to mention the most was uh, when you when you talked about Dream Girls, you had what uh, an interesting story of a lesson that you learned from playing with David Lee Roth. So oh. <laughs> in the horn section and 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 some requests that David Lee Roth was making that that kind of it was a lesson to you. Tell us a little bit about that story. Okay, sure. Um, I, I think it was late 80s, and David Lee Roth was up in uh, Vancouver, Canada, where I grew up, mm-hmm. recording uh, an album. And back in those days, they would block out a studio for three to six months at a time. And, right. and it was pretty amazing, you know, the amount of money that was being thrown around, I guess, then. Right. So, um, as so often that happened during that time, these bands would come in and they'd record all their songs and, and then they're kind of scratching their head like, yeah, this this one song, it needs something else. W- what does it need? And 
uh, oftentimes it would be a horn section. I don't know who made that decision, but right. I'm sure glad they did. So we would get called in, and, and that was a lot of my early career was playing these rock out, you know, for Aerosmith and, mm. you know, Motley Crue and, and so on, um, which is surprising because you don't think of those as being horn bands, and they're not. Right. <laughs> right. But uh, anyway, so we were in there recording a tune for David Lee Roth, and I think it was two trumpets, a trombone, maybe a tenor sax and a berry sax, something like that. Um, and we're just doing an overdub session. Um, and he's in the booth and, uh, so we get set up, you know, and we, we play one take all the way through and he comes out and he's got that, you know, California Valley boy kind of, you know, wow, guys like, man, it sounds really great, you know, (laughs) but you know, you're not, you got to push the tempo more, man. You know, (laughs) like when I was with, uh, anyway, it was really kind of funny and, uh, maybe as a visual, um, Maybe this is kind of gross, but anyway, it was back in the days with the cutoff T-shirts, right. uh, you know, <laughs> right. and and his hairy belly uh, poking out from underneath <laughs> that in in really short short uh, <laughs> like lime green or uh, neon pink shorts or something like that. Right. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> just to to give everybody right. a visual, um, it's still something I have nightmares about <laughs> to this day. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, that was the 80s, so right. uh, t- times were different. But That's anyway, he, he kept coming out to, to, the, uh, to the booth and saying, guys, you got to push it. you got to push the, the tempo. And we were getting to the point, we we're getting kind of frustrated, like, what the hell does this guy want? How much more can you possibly push this? We felt like we were staying way on top of the beat, and he still wasn't that happy with it. He kept coming out, and he was really nice about it. And it about four takes into it, we we just kind of said to each other, okay, let's push it to the point where we're just over the line of comfort. Mm-hmm. And and let's see if he likes that. You know, like you want to push, buddy, we'll push it for you, you know, and then you're gonna have to tell us to back off. Mm-hmm. And uh so we did just over that line, and he comes running out and he goes, That's it, that's great, fantastic, you know, and and it really didn't feel comfortable to me, but sure enough, when we he invited us back into the uh, control room and we listened to the playback, and sure enough, mm-hmm. damned if he wasn't right. You right. Know? It, it made perfect sense, and it was on that front edge of the beat. Mm-hmm. And so that lesson, that takeaway that I had was um, how to feel where that line is mm-hmm. and, and how to play just over my comfort zone, um, you know, as far as pushing the time a little bit and then it started becoming more comfortable and then i started doing more um well more commercial work i guess but also latin stuff too right and uh and learning how to feel comfortable with that and it served me really well and since then on pop records or um in in more pop kind of uh musicals right they they appreciate that staying on the top end of things and I, I, I could also mention sonically, uh, maybe that's not the right word to use, but in, in a big musical theater hall, yeah. if, we, if we play right on the beat, oftentimes by the time it gets out there, it sounds a little bit late. Right. So sometimes you have to almost preemptively play what's go- you know, to what's happening in the room right. and, uh, and feel comfortable doing that. Some people don't feel comfortable 
you know, if, if the stick goes here, boom, they're going to be right at it. And yeah. sometimes that's a little bit too late. So right. um, I, I point that out just to make people aware that there's a different spot to that beat that you can place the note. You can either right. be sitting back a little bit, you can be right on top of it, or you can be pushing it. Well, you know, a lot the I don't know if it's still the case, but a while back, a lot of European conductors would actually would actually put the baton just ahead of where they want the beat. And um, I, I was in Jacksonville at the time, and we had Roger Nirenberg, the conductor, and he did that. And he's the only conductor I've ever seen in person that would do that. But um, it, it was one of those things when you talk to the players they said that was really tough for them. Like a lot of the ones I talked to said, they just, they just couldn't watch the conductor, <laughs> but, wow. but, but, you know, when you start thinking about, um, if not sonically, maybe acoustically might be the word, but, but yeah, yes. the sound, the sound traveling, uh, in space, if you think about it, that, that does make sense, you know, get, get that sound out a little early so that it gets to the listener on time. So, yeah. That's interesting about the baton because for me being more of a, commercial lead player when i play in a pops symphony type of a thing where here the a lot of the north american conductors you know the downbeat uh happens and it's somewhere on their upstroke that you're supposed to hit that downbeat like ta right. you know and, and uh I, i'm just not comfortable doing that at first it takes me a while to to sort of get reacclimated, I guess, into that sort of a situation. And oftentimes, as you said, like, you know, those musicians that weren't able to watch Nuremberg, um, mm-hmm. I wasn't able to watch, you know, this. And then, right. <laughs> Cause I, I would come in way too early. So I would just have to sort of listen to what's going on around me. Right. Um, and, and, and by the way, uh, I, I have to say, you started mentioning bands like Aerosmith. Uh, the, the songs popped in my head. I was in high school, a pretty big Aerosmith fan. And, um, and I'm going to guess you probably played on the on the Pump album, like The Other Side, or there's there's some big horn parts in that, maybe Permanent Vacation, so like late 80s. Is yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Dude Looks Like a Lady. Yeah, um, nice. Uh, let me see, what else was there? Uh, line Up. Yep. Um, crying. Those were some okay, big so hits. Early nineties as well. Yeah. Okay. I guess early nineties. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Those are my high school days. So it's like, I kind of know where all those albums are. So <laughs> yeah. sure. Um, yeah. You can almost not even hear that there's horns in there. You know, yeah. um, when I've listened to them, like just after, you know, a year or two after the, the, uh, session, mm-hmm. um, it's almost like my fingers have some muscle memory. So I remember having played the session, but it's almost inaudible when you listen to the playback. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They used to really the album pump and, uh, and what you're talking about is get a grip, uh, with lineup, you know, and all that. They, they used horns quite a bit in those albums and, but yeah. they, they blended it in such a way that it doesn't take away from their core group, you know, and so forth. But, uh, that's true. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, okay. Uh, so kind of rushing on to musicals of the two thousands, you know, I think obviously a lot of our listeners know, you know, most of these shows you, you, you mentioned some of the Disney shows like Aladdin and Frozen. Um, you talk about Memphis, Sister Act. You, as you mentioned before, Spamalot, um, Wicked, uh, so In the Heights. You know, there's a lot of shows that you mentioned here. Uh, I think um, a couple of things that we can talk about of this section. One of them that you mentioned is that well, orchestrations have generally gotten smaller 
over time. You know, it's like if you if you were to play in a vintage Broadway pit, you were playing in basically a small symphony orchestra. Um, and then the era of rock has kind of transformed things. But not only that, you're a touring you are a touring musician, and budgets get cut for you know number of musicians on a tour from the Broadway show. So uh, a lot of these, especially like your Disney shows, like you know, are you're playing reduced instrumentation. How does that affect the difficulty of the music? It depends on who is uh, orchestrated and then reorchestrated or dissected or cut and pasted uh, <laughs> the the, uh, the the reduced um, orchestra. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they're they're great about it. Um, the the Spamalot reduction I toured that for about two years as a fourteen piece orchestra and it was cut to a nine piece mm-hmm. for the last year, but it was so intelligently done. And it made perfect sense. So it wasn't like, okay, looking at a score and, oh, I can see there's a rest here for the trumpet player. Okay, well, let's fill that in because there's something else going here, going on here in the score. You know, so in in those situations, you end up with everything being thrown in there, the kitchen sink, you know. Um, But with that show in particular, Spamlot, I was talking about, it was so well written that I was still basically a trumpet player i wasn't have to you know i wasn't being asked to play string lines and all these other things some of the reductions is the opposite where Mm -hmm. they they just need to fill out some sound and they don't have enough bodies in the pit so you end up playing a bunch of string pads and we talked about that earlier it's a surefire way to kill our chops as brass players Mm -hmm. but um there are some shows uh for instance newsies Mm -hmm. where um i think there was one read part cut from uh the orchestration from broadway to uh to the road. And I can't remember if there were two trumpets on that show originally. I don't think so. But um, anyway, what, what it meant was there were times where I was playing Barry sax parts on trumpet. Mm. So right at the very bottom of, of the horn and then um, changing hats. And, and then I'm a lead trumpet player. And for instance, this one line, I can't believe it. It was, um, starting a low A down to F sharp, mm-hmm. ba 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 da and then it would repeat again, ba 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 da ba da ba and it would jump up from low F sharp, two and a half octaves up to a high C, right. to, to then play a shout kind of a chorus on trumpet. So mm-hmm. the demands there are pretty extreme. Right. Um, that was sort of ridiculous, but... <laughs> um, some players would say, well, that's stupid. I'm not going to play that. And I have run into uh, some players that that say, oh, that's silly to write trumpets down that low. You, you should never do that. But, you know, my point is, well, maybe you shouldn't, but they are. Right. And therefore, my check is being signed with the expectation that I play ba-ba-ba-da, you know, like that. Right. And that's what it it's demanding. And so, therefore... I got to figure this out. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I treat it as a challenge. And I figure if I can rise to that and somehow get that into my body, then that's another tool I can take to the next show that I'm going to play. Right. It may be equally as demanding or hopefully maybe not quite as such. Right. right. 
Yeah, that's that's a good philosophy. Um, yeah. So actually, I was gonna I was gonna ask a little bit about newsies. You brought that up, so uh, so that's good. Um, the, so I, I just kind of in summary, I just I'll say I definitely would recommend this book to. Uh, I, I think any any brass player could probably find find use in it, but specifically if you're a trumpet player, because these are again about half the book consists of trumpet excerpts. And I will say, in addition to being good content, you know, it's like it's a good looking book. It's a it's a, it's a good it's nice spiral bound, uh, got a good cover to it, and the uh, the excerpts are really beautifully done. You know, it's like it's very clear and so forth. So. Thank you. Um, so yes, congratulations on that. Um, Thank now, you very do much. I understand you have a you have a sequel to this book? I do. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. It was within weeks um, that uh, my first book came out. I was hearing from people all around the country. Oh well, what about this show? You didn't include that, you know? Right. And it's funny you mentioned this much earlier on in our uh, in our chat here that uh, you know I, I kind of covered most of the the major. Um, more often played musicals, mm-hmm. and uh, sure enough, as soon as that came out, I'm, I'm hearing like, "Oh, well, you didn't include this one. You really should." And and so um, my publisher got word of that, and he said, "Well, let's let's put out a sequel to that." So I'm working on that right now. Um, I think I had 55. You mentioned 54, 55, 56, something like yeah. that. Musicals right. in the first one. I can't remember how many. Something like that. Right. Um, and this one. We'll have, I think, thirty-five, right? Something like that, and um, they're a lot more obscure. Like, for instance, um, mm-hmm. how's this one for obscure? You mentioned Annie, mm-hmm. and there's Annie Get Your Gun. Of course, they're right. not at all the same show, right? But there's one in this upcoming book called Annie Warbucks, oh. and apparently that was a sequel to the original Annie uh, musical, and there was another Annie later. Uh, hmm. but anyway, so th- there's a couple little tricky bits in there and I right. just figure if nothing else, um, this is a good opportunity for players to look at some music that, uh, it's challenging, you know, right. uh, w- our libraries are filled with, uh, etude books and, and other things that are difficult to practice that we may never actually perform. Um, so I thought, well, this is a way that I, I can put all of these things in there um, that are challenging and are worthwhile working on. And they are some shows that uh, are maybe a little obscure, but, but uh, you know, they are played. And uh, especially community theaters, they, they like to pick things that are maybe not played all the time, you know. Right. Um, waiting for Guffman right. <laughs> that musical exactly. comes to mind and like, you know, Hey, let's put on a show and uh, do this thing that has only ever been performed once in 19, you know, 37. <laughs> right. Uh, now uh, I, I only, t- to me, there was only one glaring omission and it was just because I've done the show twice and it's been one of the most mentioned shows on this podcast. So, so hopefully you got it in book two. If not, I gave you, I'm giving you an idea for book three, and that is Legally Blonde, the musical. You know, I don't know why I didn't put that in the first one. There's right. no real reason. It right. may have been just that I didn't get my hands on uh, right. y- y- the music to, to pull out some excerpts. But talk so about think... so many styles, you know, that's, uh, yes. that's a big one right there. So, and, and, but, I, but I know that yeah, yeah, that one uses a trumpet, so... Uh, yeah, I've gotten to music direct that one twice. It's a 
a fun but very demanding show, especially for reading key signatures. <laughs> yes, you know, lots of guitar keys in that show, yeah. Right. Um, let's see, so I think we talked about that. Uh, are there any other projects you have going on? Like, what, what show are you touring, or what's coming up next? Well, I just rejoined uh, Frozen after whatever it was, 19 months or something of furloughed. Uh, it was, uh, I like to kid, I'm not usually very... Uh, smart with my business decisions. Ah. <laughs> but I, I had been on the Aladdin tour and mm-hmm. um, over two years. And there was about six weeks left on that tour. And then I got offered the Frozen tour. So I, I left Aladdin early to, to begin the Frozen tour. And we had just done, um, well, the show had mounted already and it played, I think, three months in LA prior to the majority of us in the orchestra being hired on. So then we did Seattle, I think it was three weeks, and we had just started Portland, Oregon when the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. So it shut us down, obviously, and then uh, that left the majority of all of our dates on the itinerary still on the table. And uh, so fortunately, um, I always had that to look forward to. You know, nobody knew when the things would open back up again and shows would start up again, but I always had that at least that that carrot dangling way out there right it seemed like forever uh, out there but uh, anyway so i'm back on frozen and um having a great time uh the other projects i'm working on uh, i have a business partner and we're starting a website that um if you can imagine web md but mm-hmm. for brass players oh so somebody that has an affliction or they're wondering how do i prepare for this or i just beat the crap out of my chops and i don't know what to do i can't play anymore mm. what's going on um there, there's all sorts of stuff there we've we filmed over 135 i think instructional uh videos ranging from about two and a half to somewhere as long as 11 minutes. But it's little snippets of here's this nugget of information and people can go to this website and get just that information, watch it and get the answers, hopefully, to to their questions. So that's in the developing stages right now. We've got a web developer and and, uh, we're hoping to launch that in later November, maybe for Christmas. Mm. Um, and then my, uh, the, the sequel, as you mentioned to the Broadway book that should come out if all goes well by black Friday. Okay. Um, that's, that's our plan. We're, we're in the final stages. Now the, uh, copyist is doing all his work and I'm just finishing up the final editing. So that's looking good. Wow. That's all very exciting. And, uh, I, I love the, the web MD for brass players. Uh, that sounds like a fun thing. Right. Um, let um, me, so let me just make sure. a quick mention. It's called trumpet diagnostics. Okay. So you, you can come and find us on Facebook. We have a, a, a group there called trumpet diagnostics and, uh, on YouTube, our channel is trumpet diagnostics and the website will be trumpet diagnostics.com. So right now we've got, um, We've got interviews, uh, about 60 interviews, I guess, hmm. up on uh, YouTube. And most of them are, are sort of instructional in, in a way, or, or at least there are things to glean out of any of those. We've got Wayne Bergeron and Michael Sachs from the Cleveland Orchestra and uh, David Washburn, um, Bobby Shue. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some really interesting ones as, as well. Great. 
so just uh, just lump in these last few questions. Where um, so you know we other than trumpet diagnostics, where can people find out more about you? Also, where can people buy your book? And uh, and if people want to follow you online, where can they find you? You know, I'm terrible at the self-promotion stuff, so thanks right. for asking that question. Yeah. Um, my website is paulbaron.net, so mm-hmm. that's uh, P-A-U-L-B-A-R-O-N.net. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find me there. There's links to my book from there. But my publisher is is where it's being sold. I Because I am on the, the road, I, I don't really have the luxury of having inventory out here on the road. And right. as well, oftentimes I'm, I'm just plunked down in a city and I'm walking and, you know, so I, I can't be running out to a FedEx or UPS store or something, um, just walking with, you know, tons of books. So right. it's all available at Q press, the letter Q press.ca mm-hmm. for Canada. Okay. And, um, for anybody that's interested, um, check out that website. It, not only do, do they have my books, but he's got the largest selection of brass literature exercises, uh, etudes, um, mm. you know, other performance uh, materials there for brass. He's the largest selection of anybody, I think, in the world. It's really amazing. Great. Well, this is this has been a great interview. It's uh, it's one of those. This could have easily gone two hours if we if we just kind of let it. But uh, it's you know we we talked about a whole book that's got a wealth of information uh, for trumpet players. Uh, so thank you for the book uh, for allowing me to read it, and uh, thank you for coming on to talk about it. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you spending the time with me. And uh, as I said earlier, spending the time reading my book, too. I really do appreciate that. And uh, yes, this could have gone on easily two hours. It was such a a fun time talking with you. So thanks for having me on. And that wraps up episode 60. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, If you'd like to leave feedback on this episode or any other episodes, uh, I would love it if you would Uh, just send me a message. You can do that through Instagram uh, or Facebook, or you can go to uh, davidlanemusic.com slash podcast and leave uh, some feedback through the feedback form there um, where you can also check out the other episodes. You can also uh, donate if you feel so inclined. And just also a reminder, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you're following to make sure that you're being notified when new episodes come in. Uh, Again, I don't know when the next episode will be. Uh, As soon as I have content, I will get it out to you, and I'll try not to let too many weeks go by in between. Um, Speaking of my website, so the website, of of course, right now is davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Uh, Well, just this week, I finally bought the rights to lifeinthepitpod.com, which will be the same handle as the Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Facebook pages, so it'll be easier to find. I just need to get that redirected while I actually build a separate site for that. So all coming up in uh, hopefully by the end of the year. For right now, though, uh, same as always, davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. And again, uh, thank you for checking this out. I look forward to bringing you the next episode whenever that is. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter or Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thanks to Mark Carollo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. 
For the time being, you can find out more about this podcast, leave feedback, or leave a donation through davidlingmusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app, and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.